tonight we have with us Joey Thompson. Joey's been on with us before. Now, this program is going to be on the kings of the earth. And we're going to be talking about the four kings that came against Abraham. But before we get into that story, let's talk about a little history in the land of the Middle East. The earliest historical records come from the area of Sumer. Sumer is spelled S-U-M-E-R. Now, it's just another name for Shinar or Babylon. Now, Shinar would be the southern portion of the land of Babylon. Now, the northern portion of the land of Babylon was controlled by Assyria. Now, we want to tie that Sumer kings list back to Genesis. And we're going to start with the first king, which was listed as Emerkar. Emerkar is spelled E-M-M-E-R-C-A-R. And like we said, he's on the Sumer kings list. Now, the king's list in history tells us that this king founded Ur. Now, Ur is spelled U-R-U-K. Now, the cyclopedia tells us that Ur is pronounced differently in Hebrew. It's pronounced E-R-E-C-H, Eric. Now, that name of that city is actually found in Scripture, and we're going to look at that now. Genesis 10, starting in verse 8. I'm going to read that. And Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, look at verse 10. And the beginning of his kingdoms was Babel. Now, Babel would have been the place where the Tower of Babel was built. It's about eight miles out of the city of Babylon. The second city was called Eric, E-R-E-C-H. This is the same city that is listed on the Sumer Kings list that archaeologists have today. It is the same city as Ur, U-R-U-K. No doubt the city of Ur is the same city as Eric in Genesis 10, 10. And Nimrod would have been its founder. According to scripture, Nimrod founded that city. So he would have founded the city of Ur. That would make him the king Emerkar on the Sumer list. Does everybody see that? Because Ur on the Sumer list is the same thing for Eric on the account in Genesis. That's a critical point. So Emerkar would be Nimrod. So once you figure this out, then you know who the other kings are, don't you? Now, according to the Sumer list, Emerkar... His father was named Mash Kangasher. Now, Nimrod's father would have been Cush, so that's who this king is. And Mash Kangasher's father was Rotru. That's R T U. We know Cush's father was Ham. So now we know who these kings are on the Sumer list. Now, the very first town in the area of Shinar, which remember is the southern part of Babylon, was called Kish. K-I-S-H, according to archaeologists. It was the very first town that was settled in Shinar. And it's very easy to see that K-I-S-H is the same name for Cush. You substitute the I for a U, and you have the word Cush. Now, there's also, and I need to mention this, there's also a king's list of Sumer kings that is listed before the flood. 
but those are not the ones we're interested in. Archaeologists have those lists also. So when you see the list of, of Sumer kings, sometimes they list it as 4000 BC. And that's true, they did have kings and in that area at that time. But obviously, we're only interested in the ones after the flood here. I want to mention something else that's very interesting, and that is that the Encyclopedia Britannica tells us that the third king in the dynasty of Kish was a woman, and her name was Kiba, K-H-E-B-A. And her name means, if you look it up, it means the queen of heaven. So this is not a hard stretch to figure out who this is. According to legend, this is Semiramis, or Isis, or Isatar, whichever name you prefer to call it. She was married to Cush. Now, Cush would eventually leave the area of Sumer, or Shinar, and he would go to Egypt and reign as king there. We mentioned he is King Mendes in another program. When he does, his queen reigns over the land of Sumer, which is the centered out of Cush, K-I-S-H. Now, she would conceive a plot with her son, who was Nimrod, and go into the land of Egypt and kill him. Nimrod then would also rule over Egypt and both Egypt and Sumer, or Shinar. Now, there's a famous legend that is actually written down. It's called Emerkar and the Lord of Aretha. And in that account, it says that Emerkar lived during the time of the confusion of languages. That definitely would have been at the time of the, of the Tower of Babel. Read what the Cyclopedia says. It says, Emurkar, which is Nimrod, seeks to try to restore the linguistic unity of the inhabited region around Ur. And it also mentions that he ruled over the land called Marti land. Now, the land of the Martis was the land of the Amorites. Now, the, now the Amorites are listed in the table of nations as one of the children or sons of or descendants of Cana. Now the Amorites would have been a giant race and they definitely lived in the land of Shinar. History records that they lived in the land of Shinar and they would eventually move out of the land of Shinar and go into the land of, of uh, Cana, which we know they are listed in the list of the Canaanites that Joshua went to war with. In fact, the king of Og and Shohan were both Amorite kings. Now Amos 2 verse 9 tells you that the Amorites were as tall as cedars and oaks. So they were a giant race. And they would be the race of people who were Canaanites who would help Nimrod build the Tower of Babel. Now history and the Jewish encyclopedia tells us a little bit about these people. They were quite evil. They practiced black magic. And they said that they were the most evil of all the Canaanite tribes. Now there was a promise that Abraham was made, and that was in Genesis 15, verse 13. I'm going to read that, and he said unto Abram, Know of certainty that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land, not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them for 400 years. Now this is obviously talking about how the Israelites went into the land of Egypt. But in the fourth generation they shall come forth again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So the Amorites were in the land of Cana, and the Israelites could not enter into that land until their fourth generation of the Amorites because their iniquity was not yet full. That meant basically it would take that long for them to reach a level that God considered intolerable. Now, if you remember the story of Semiramis, 
or Istor in Egypt. Her name was Istor in Egypt. She would be the third king in Shinar on the Sumer list as the third king. She was called the Queen of Heaven, according to the Cyclopedia. She would have a second son after Nimrod, and his name was Horus. Now, Horus would be living at the same time as Abraham. And the Austrian Chronicles records that Abraham's family went to war with Horus. This is how Abraham's oldest brother died. He died in that battle with Horus, or one of Horus's generals, I should say. And the, the general is listed in the Austrian Chronicles as Satan. So after Abraham's father would have passed away, then, then Abraham would have been the patriarch of the family. Now, this all happened around 2094 B.C. Now, according to Acts 7, Stephen is given the account of Abraham, and he said he lived in the land of Eupha, which is located in Turkey. Eupha is spelled U-R-F-A. Oh, my goodness, could we please stop teaching that Abraham came out of Babylon? The Ur that's mentioned there is Urfa. It is not in Babylon. It is in Turkey. It makes for a nice story, but it's not the truth. We learn quite a bit about Horus from the epic of Galgamesh. Galgamesh was claimed to be the heir of Nimrod. So did Horus. Both were born of the Queen of Heaven. That would have been Isis or Istor. And they both had the spirit as a father. Now remember that Istor claimed that she was impregnated by the spirit of Nimrod after he died, and that's how she got pregnant with Horus. Now Horus is the name of her son, and it's an Egyptian name. And it's actually found on the tomb, one of the tombs in Egypt, in Abydos, Egypt. It says, Aha Horus. So Horus and Gilgamesh may have been the same people, although a lot of people think Gilgamesh is Nimrod himself. Now, the Epic of Gilgamesh says that he was very angry with God for destroying all the people on the earth, and he went and helped build a tower. Now, according to the World Compendium, Gilgamesh would have reigned, or Horus would have reigned, 126 years. Now, his real father was probably Ashura, because legend has it that Ishtar also married Ashura. Now, remember, Ashura was one of the sons of Shem. He would have been one of, he would have settled and been the founder of Nineveh, which is, would have been in the area of Assyria, which is in the northern part of Babylon. History really doesn't tell you who Horus' father is. We're just assuming that could have been a possibility. Now, Horus's son would have been Eulogel. No, these are names you've not heard of before, but they're coming off the Sumer list, Sumer Kings list. Now, we want to talk a little bit about Ashura, and so let's read Genesis 10, verse 11, and it says, Out of the land went forth Ashura, and he built Nineveh. Now, Nineveh would have been in Assyria. So this region was controlled by two groups of people, the Assyrians from the very beginning, which descended from Ashura, and the descendants of Cush and Nimrod. Now, the connection between the two of them is that Ishtar was married to both men. According to history, she was the daughter of Ashkenazi. Now that we know this history, now we can take that information and determine who these kings are, these four kings in the book of Genesis 
We're going to be talking about the kings of the earth, and we're going to tie this and run this all through history because there is a baton, is that not true, Joey, that is running from the time of Abraham and on all through history that God has a baton that he's passing. He's always had a prophet or a teacher in every generation. Is that not true? He's always had someone that he has passed this baton to. Well, oh, Satan has the same same thing, doesn't he? And that's what we want to talk about today. Linda, it, it goes back even further. It goes back even further than that to Canaan and Seth, the two forms of religious worship, two mindsets, and it it runs all the way through Scripture. Absolutely. So we're going to briefly go through these kings of the earth with Abraham. You know this starts in Genesis. And the very first king that we're going to talk about is Amraphael. And Amraphael would have been the king of Shinar at that time. He would have been Hammurabi, according to what Historians are telling us today that they feel like that Amraphael was Hammurabi. Now, Hammurabi is known for the code of law. It was a different laws, not God's laws, but different laws. And basically, he also did something else that was really interesting. Joy, what was that? Well, Linda, <clears throat> Daniel talks about the changing of times and laws, and that is a, a part of um, this false form of worship down through history, and he would have been one of the first to begin to change times and laws. He changed uh, the hour from, uh, you know, broken up periods of time, 12 hours in a day, to 60 minutes or 24 hours in a day. And uh, we're going to get into some of the repercussions of that later in this program. Well, now, the reason they believe that it's Hammurabi, first of all, he was a descendant of Horus. Now, Horus probably was his son of Ashura. Now remember, Ashura was one of the five sons of Shem. Shem was still alive at that time. Shem could have been Melchizedek. We don't know. But he was a man that was called without beginning of days or end of days. He lived like ten generations, outlived all his grandchildren. So they just thought he would live forever. But Mm -hmm. he passed that baton to Abraham, did he not? And when he did, he had he had children and grandchildren from from five different sons. And one of those sons would have been Ashura. And Ashura probably, in this case, Amraphael was probably a grandson of Semiramis, who was his wife. She was married to both Ashura and to Cush. Cush had already died. And so obviously Horus, who is referred to, and he's actually buried in Abydos, Egypt. You can go see his grave today. It says, Aha, Horus. That is a god of Egypt. He was worshipped as, as a god, but he actually was one of the kings of Egypt, and he was a king in the land of Shinar. Now, Amraphael, according to the British Museum, is the, the person called Hammurabi. They come to that conclusion because they found a cylinder that says Amraphael is Hammurabi. And so that's why they come to that conclusion. Now, the second king that's mentioned is Arioch. And Arioch was uh, basically, he was the grandson of Semiramis. Here you go again. And he was the grandson of Ninus. Now, Ninus is, throughout history, he's talked about throughout history, he would have been Ashura because he was the founder of Nineveh. 
Now, Nineveh, according to scripture in Genesis 10, Nineveh is the city that was founded by Ashura. So it's very easy to find out that Ninus is the same person, and this was the grandson of Ninus and the grandson of Semiramis. My goodness, here we got all this history, and we don't know who these people are. Now, he lived in the area or the borderline of um, Arabia. So all of these kings are coming out of the Middle East, are they not? They certainly are. Now, the next king is Titus. Titus was the first king of the Hittites. He lived in the area we call Asia Minor. They controlled the trade between Europe and Asia. They probably were the wealthiest people at that time on the face of the earth. And it would be Esau that would marry into that family line. He married a Hittite and a Hevite queens. And he actually married into that line. Esau was always to have wealth, and he had it from the very beginning. Now, the last king we want to mention that Abraham fought against was Cherdoloma. And Cherdoloma was a king of the, of the Elamites. He would have been a descendant, again, of one of Shem's children, one of five children of Shem. He would have been a descendant of that. So it's interesting that of these kings, three of them were Shem's grandchildren or great-great-great-great-grandchildren, correct? Absolutely. And so this was a bloodline feud. And, of course, you know, it's very interesting because Melchizedek comes and offers bread and wine. We'll have to cover that story sometime. Bread and wine, that's very significant because those are the symbols of Israel, bread and wine or the symbols of Israel. They mean covenant. Those people were called the covenant people. Now, this baton would be eventually passed from these four kings to the four kings that are mentioned in the book of Daniel. Joey, can you tell everybody a little bit about that? Well, the, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold, which was Babylon, the chest and arms of silver, which would have been the Medes and the Pers Persians, and the belly and torso of brass, which would have been Alexander the Great's Greco-Macedonian Empire, as the body goes into two at the legs. And then the legs, which would have been the, the knees and calves of iron, which was representative of Rome. And then finally, the, the final empire that was to come out of Rome would have been the two feet, which was mixed with miry clay, which is interesting, Linda, that Clay, uh, Jeremiah tells us that Israel is the clay, and it's not miry clay, by the way. We've always been taught that it's miry clay that is in Daniel. It's not. It is, if you look the word up, it's literally clay that is without any moisture. It's not miry at all, not pliable, but they're void of the Spirit to create a very brittle, very fragmented set of ten nations, the ten toes uh, that are on these feet that rule, as Revelation says, for a very brief period of time. Right. Now, we see the connection with Rome. So there's this baton being passed down. Is that not correct? Yeah, there's and Linda, yeah, I want to add to what I just said. There's two other nations before that that make, up, that make up seven nations listed in Revelation. I think it's 18. That, um, and those, those nations are in order. Egypt, Assyria, and of course Egypt would have been 
founded by Horus and this this line that you talked about. So you get, you have Egypt, Assyria, Rome, Greco Macedonia. Uh, excuse me, the Medes and the Persians, then Greco Macedonia, then Rome, then this final kingdom, the the revised Roman Empire, and then finally the the eighth kingdom, which is the kingdom of Satan himself at the very end. Right, exactly, and we don't know what that is yet, no. but it's yet to come. All right, it's probably on the scene, but, you know, it's hard to put your finger on it. All right, so I want to mention this empire called Rome, and I think it's it was in prophecy in the book of Numbers. People read it all the time, and they don't catch it. I'll start reading Numbers 24, 23. And he took up a parable and said, At last, who shall live when God does this? And the ships from the coast of Chittim, and shall afflict Ashura, and shall afflict Eber, and they shall dwell, and shall perish forever. Now, it's talking about the ships from the coast of Chittim. Now, Chittim was the island of Cyprus. Esau's grandson, Zipo, married the daughter of the king of Cyprus, and he married into that line, into Cyprus, and Josephus tells you that Chittim was not just the island of Cyprus. It was the whole area around the Mediterranean Sea. It was actually an area of merchants and ships, and it was controlled basically by Esau. That's what we want to see here because Esau married into these, this king line, and Esau was always about money and being a merchant. He actually married the Hittite, the uh, Hittite queen, and a Hevite queen, and he, he wanted wealth. That's why he married into those families. The area of Asia Minor was where the, uh, the trade lines were between Europe and Asia. Is that not correct? Yeah. Listen, this is a, such a huge factor to come to understand, and the Edomites that have made their way through history have been known as merchants. What you listed back in Numbers, the 24th chapter, as you said, the ships of the merchants of of the Mediterranean Sea, Esau had his tentacles all in that merchandising, and it even made its way into the churches because what you read in Genesis, excuse me, Numbers 24, was the, the description of what Balaam was asked to do by Barak to the nation of Israel. He was trying to get them to curse them. And in in Revelation 2, verse 14, and this is the letter to the church of Pergamos, and this would have been, Linda, during the time of the rise of the Catholic Church, and he's writing a letter to those commandment keepers who would not be a part of that church. But he says to them, But I have a few things against you. He says, because you have taken on the ways, or you have there, those who have hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. That stumbling block is the merchandising of the gospel of truth. And the Catholic Church today is, I mean, if, if you had to put one description, physical description of the Catholic Church, it would be materialism. They are the richest that is the richest city-state in the world. And so and it's a critical piece to understand because they were merchants. All of yep. them were merchants. We will return to setting history straight after this commercial break.
please listen to this broadcast live every week where we unveil the true history of Israel. For more information about this broadcast, please visit our website at www.12tribehistory.com. That is the number 12, tribehistory.com, or email us at lwatson44 at cox.net with any questions or comments. We now return to Setting History Straight with Linda Watson. Now, we want to talk about Esau's name and the meaning of Esau's name. And I got this information from Brad Scott. And he said that the first two, two of the letters inside the name of Esau, two letters mean to waste or means the word waste. And if you take and put the vav, which is the nail, in the Hebrew alphabet, in front of those two words, that word that means to waste, in Hebrew, you have the word Esau. It means hairy, and it means goat. Okay, and it also has another meaning, and that other meaning that it has, if you look at the root word of of the word Esau, it means to be a grass or a weed. So when we look at this parable. And we're going to look at that parable of that's mentioned about the, the tares in Matthew 13. It says that these people, that they, they were raising this wheat, and the wheat is represented by Jacob. And the tares that is in the midst of the wheat is Esau. I hope you all see that, that it is a wheat or a weed, and that's what Esau's name means, is tares or grass. I hope you see that and realize that it's, it says leave them in your midst because they will be in your midst and I will remove them at the end. And they would be the goats in the other parable of the goats and the sheep where God says I want to put the sheep on my right side and the goats on my left side. And those goats would be the people that he would be removing. So that's the same parable. He's going to remove Esau or that spirit of Esau out of wheat, which is Jacob. Now, I hope let, everybody sees that. Now, let's go further into this subject because he's also called Satar, is he not? Yes. Linda, I want to interject that uh, back to those the wheats and the tares, Yeshua, out of his own mouth, said that I was not sent to anyone save the, the except for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His ministry was to Israel. So here again we have these uh, these two seeds that are spiritually warring against one another. He's talking specifically about a people that killed all of the prophets from the time of Abel to the time of Zechariah. It, it's, uh, it's known, it's translated in the New Testament as a generation. It's called a wicked and adulterous generation who killed all of the prophets from uh, Abel to Zacharias. That spans from Genesis to literally the time of Messiah when John the Baptist's father was killed. But 
there's no generation that's done that. The word generation is genos in the Greek, and it, it look it up. It literally denotes people that he was talking about as being these tares, and they are literally the seed line that you've spoken of. We've referenced from Cain down through these kings all the way to Esau, and then Esau bought, when you come to understand it, he bought the priesthood. They, they were the Pharisees of their day. They were. Okay. So these and, Pharisees were the seed line that we're talking about that are actually uh, mentioned as part of this passing the baton. But we want to go back to Leviticus 17.7 and start talking about this satyr and this religious um, spirit that seems to keep cropping up in the nation of Israel as we go through. Now, the word satyr in Hebrew means to conceal or to hide, they're hidden. Yep. And the it also means it, that's the only word in the Hebrew language that adds up to six six six. I'm going to repeat that. that again. That's the only Hebrew word that adds up to six six six. That is so, amazing information. It is. So, what is the connection with Satar? We want to make that connection with Satar and with uh, Esau. Leviticus 16 gives the story of the, the, the play, and I call it a play because that's exactly what it is, um, of the Day of Atonement. And interestingly enough, you have the goat, or you know, yeah, it is a goat of Yahweh, which is representative of Yeshua being killed. And then you have the goat of Satan, the Azazel goat, which is played out as the goat that sin will be laid upon at the end time and its fulfillment. But in Leviticus 17, you have a description of this goat again, and he says, referring back to when Israel made the calf demon, or the, the golden calf, uh, while Moses was on the mountain, he says, they will no more offer sacrifices to goat demons, or satyrs. It's uh, translated as demons in my Bible. But look it up, the word is satyr, after whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever, for them throughout their generations. So we have this reference of Israel desiring to go back to this false worship, which is that of the god Satyr, which has the idol, every god has an idol except for Yahweh, the idol of the um, golden calf that they resurrected in the wilderness. Now, Linda, I've got to take you once again, after Yahweh straightened that mess out, rose its ugly head once again in Second Chronicles, the 11th chapter, and we're going to read verse 15. And this is speaking of, of uh, Jeroboam, who was the king of the 11 nations at the time. It's, it dwindled down to 10 after Benjamin broke off and, and attached itself to Judah. But if you'll remember the story, Israel was split up into two kingdoms, the kingdom of the south, which would have been Judah at this particular time because of the promise that Yahweh made to uh, David that he would not remove his name from his lineage. But because of the sins of, of Solomon and the split in the house of Israel, 11 kings were, uh, 11 kings, 11 nations were given to Rehoboam, who was, by the way, the very first mason. He was the chief builder in the house of, uh, that Solomon built that was dedicated to Yahweh, the temple. And this same Rehoboam resurrected this religious entity of Saturn worship. He says, Then he, Jeroboam, appointed for himself priest of the high places for the satyrs, for the goat demons, and the calf idols which he made. 
Okay, now, there you go. That that ties it together, and this is this goes back to the calendar statement that we talked about a minute ago with the changing of times and laws, because what else did he do at this time? This is when he made the Feast of Tabernacles to be worshipped in the eighth month instead of the seventh month, because, and he did this for money, because the nation of Israel was going, or most of the people of Israel was going to, to Rehoboam to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, taking their tithes and offerings to him, uh, to Rehoboam, and Jeroboam didn't like that, so he instituted that his people would keep the Feast of Tabernacles in the eighth month, so he also would get tithes and offerings brought exactly. to him and his priests. And Linda, one more stop, and then I'll, I'll turn it back over to you. In, um, in Acts, the second chap- uh, seventh chapter, Right, right. This is where it, the, the rubber really meets the road. Uh, this is when Stephen was really laying it to the priest of his day because they had bought the priesthood, was both mixed. The Pharisees were mixed. There were some true Yehudim in the priesthood. But he says this in verse 41, speaking to them, He says, And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to, to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their hands. Then Yahweh turned and gave them up to worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the books of the prophets, and he's speaking specifically of Amos, and he quotes from Amos, the fifth chapter, verse 25, and he says this, Luke is writing what Stephen spoke. He says, Then you offered me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during the 40 years of the wilderness. He's asking, Did you do this, O house of Israel? So the time setting is unmistakable of what we're talking about, this same goat demon back in Leviticus 17.7. He says in verse 43, you also took up the tabernacle of Moloch. Here's another entity in this long line of changing names, which is the same spirit of basically Cain and and Cush and so on. The star of Remphan, your God, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon, which is that, that phrase beyond Babylon is a prophecy of what would happen, the mixing of the clay and uh, the iron of the head of gold, that statue, which would have its fulfillment in the end time, that resurrected Babylonian empire that uh, what, what most people call the revised Holy Roman Empire that is yet still to come. So this is a prophecy of the spirit that would be around from the time of Nebuchadnezzar all the way down to the end time, it is hidden, as you said, Linda, and it is a mystery to a lot of people. And I'll give you one of the signs of that mystery, this star of Remphan, keyword there, Pan, which literally is uh, the god the god Pan in Roman mythology is the half-goat, half-man, the satyr being, which is the god literally in image that... Israel has desired to worship and is still worshiping today because they carry the star of Remphan, which is what, Linda? It's a six-point star. The seal of Solomon. And if you want an interesting study, just Google the seal of Solomon and have your mind blown. And if you've got anything, a, a napkin or a picture or a, uh, a ring or anything that you're wearing that has that star, of, do your study and then watch how fast you throw that crap away. But absolutely, and we need to bring up the connection with Esau to the Roman Empire, which I'm going to do right now, and that is that they worship, the Roman Empire worshiped Saturn. Saturn comes from the word satar, which is that same word in Hebrew which 
we're talking about, which is, it has two meanings. It has to be concealed, also means to devils. And so it was the worship of Esau, okay? It was that goat demon that was Esau. And when they celebrated Saturn in the Roman Empire, they started on December 17th. It ended on December 21st. It was the day called the Time of Lights because it was leading up to the period which would be the winter solstice. The 21st would have been the winter solstice. On the 19th, they they actually gave gifts to one another. They It says they gave toys to the children. On the 23rd, that would have been the worship of Saturn, which was Esau, which was Satar, which was yeah. the goat demon and devils. And then they also picked up on the 23rd and 24th and 25th and worshiped the sun god, which was their other god, which is what we actually refer to now as that whole celebration we refer to is what we keep today as Christmas that our ancestors never kept in this country. That's right. Our early, the early settlers in this country never kept that. Linda, they it was- understood it came from the Roman church. They understood its ramifications. And, and let, let me make one other connection here, and that was the descendants of Amalek, because God said, you will go to war, talking to Israel, you will go to war with Amalek every generation. Yeah. We moved into Parthia, we went to war with Rome. When we went, moved into Scythia, we went to war with Rome. When we were, moved into Europe, we went to war with Rome. And World War One and World War Two was a war with Rome. Now, I don't know how many more times that God has to play this out. If you don't get history, you can't understand the Bible because the two fit together like a glove. Joey. Yeah. Linda, I got so much to say. You just kept rambling off information. (laughs) Uh, I'll tell you what. That's called the Saturnalia. Everything that you just listed there is known today as Saturnalia in pagan uh, worship, and if, if you want an interesting study there, just Google the word Saturnalia, and you'll find that everything that Linda has said is 100% correct, and it, it dates back to, uh, you know, you've got the 12 days of Christmas. Well, those 12 days of Christmas is exactly what Linda just told you, and who was it that brought Christmas to the Americas? Was it not the Hessians of Germany, and Linda, tell us who the Hessians were. And the Hessians were the Assyrians. They right. were the descendants of the Assyrians. Now, when when Assyria fell in 610 BC, they were the people called the the in history in the the area of Asia Minor. If you look at a map, they were called the Kermans, K E R M A N. Jerome, if I could only talk, said that they moved in with the Israelites. They moved in with the present day. Israelites and the present day Israelites were in Scythia and eventually moved into Western Europe. So Jerome said they moved with with the Israelites. They stayed with them. So those people we know are the Hessians. Their other name was Chatty. And mm-hmm. you can easily make the connection of the word Chatty with Germans. Go look it up in any encyclopedia. It will tell you Chatty people would come to America as the Hessians, they would bring Christmas with them. 
and a little bit of uh, American history. It was on Christmas night or Christmas morning, I guess you would say, Christmas Eve, certainly, when George Washington crossed the river, which was frozen by that time, or excuse me, just barely unfrozen. He was he was trying to get there before it would freeze, and they, they come across on boats, and they attacked what army, Linda, that was the waiting Hestians. on the other side because the they were drunk. They were drunk from celebrating Christmas the night before. <laughs> right. And the interesting thing is the story of George Washington coming into that camp is identical to the story of Abraham and those four kings. Yep, that's right. Abraham and those four, when he went against those four kings that we just mentioned, Abraham went in at the very early dawn and killed them while they were sleeping. Interesting. Linda, I, can I take you back uh, to a passage that will blow some people's minds? Um, today, we, or we talked about earlier, and this prophecy is given about Middle Eastern Jerusalem. This is Amos, the ninth chapter, and I'm going to start reading in verse 11. He says, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And, of course, Jerusalem fell many, many times, and says, which has fallen down and repented. And repair its damages, I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And of course, Jerusalem today is a, a very well-known nation because it, it is prosperous in the middle of a desert, a, a big bag of rocks. You will find budding greenery that uh, comes from righteous living. But why? What does it say? It says, and I will rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom... And all of the Gentiles or the Canaanites who are called upon my name, says Yahweh, who does this thing. Wow. And that's what you have today. Right. Now, we also know that when he was talking, he's basically, he's basically talking about the Pharisees. Okay, let's talk about the history of the Pharisees, and we're going to start with Philo. Now, Philo lived in Jerusalem at the time of the Messiah, and he moved to Alexander and founded the Alexander School. Now, this school would educate many of the teachers in the Catholic Church. Now, when the people fled in 70 AD, this is when Philo went to Alexander and started the Alexander School. And he wrote many religious teachings, but he never once mentioned the Messiah. He was definitely a Pharisee, and he was very closely associated with the Pharisees. Now, Clement, Origen, and Justin Mortar were all educated in this school, and they pushed the oral law from the Talmud, which was the written-down oral law, and Greek paganism. And these men became known as the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which are the early teachers in the Catholic Church. So it's no doubt that this is where many of the teachings of the Catholic Church came from, is this Alexander School. Now, the church in Rome, which was basically founded by Linus, who is mentioned in Scripture, kept the Sabbath until 190 A.D. So the Catholic Church was keeping the Saturday Sabbath for almost 200 years after the time of the Messiah. In 190 A.D., Clement, who was educated in the Alexander School, and the Pope Victor changed keeping Saturday to Sunday. This was a result from Justin Martyr's teaching. He wrote a paper called The Apology, arguing that Saturday worship needed to be changed to Sunday. Now, many of the teachings in the Catholic Church came right out of the Ananias Fathers' teachings. 
and they were highly influenced by the Talmud and by the oral law. So when the Messiah said, beware of the Pharisees, because they'll deliver you up, he wasn't just talking about the Pharisees of his day. He was talking about the churches they would start. Now, I covered the entire history of the Sabbath on at least two of my radio programs, so you might want to go back and hear that. Now, in 376 A.D., the Emperor Grinion refused to wear the crown, and he passed it to Damascus, who was the Bishop of Rome, and he wore that crown, and that crown was the crown that was used in Pergamus. It was given to Julius Caesar. He died before he got a chance to wear it. But his nephew, Augustus, wore it. And every Roman emperor was crowned with it until Gravian uh, passed it to the Catholic Church. Now, Scripture tells you that the church in Pergamos was the seat of Satan. It is where they originally had that crown. Now, this is that baton we keep talking about. You see, we have brought many of our teachings many of the false teachings into our churches. Every tradition we have, if we can't find it in Scripture, we need to remove it from our worship. Even many of the traditions in the Hebrew Roots churches came from the Talmud. Now, this is not to say everything in the Talmud is incorrect. Now, we know the teaching of the head coverings came out of the Talmud. Please go do a study on that for yourself. We're not interested in looking the part God wants a people who worships him in spirit and truth. Now, even our ancestors that founded this country refused to have a prayer book. And that's what the Pharisees brought into the churches were the traditions. Read Mark 7 verse 9 and it says, And he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandments of God that you may keep your own traditions. I know many people think, well, what's wrong with a few, adding a few traditions? Revelations 22:18. For I testify unto everyone that bears the word of prophecy of this book, if any man should add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. You keep your traditions, you can't find them in Scripture, you will not be given an opportunity for protection. That's plain and simple. So now let's get to the real question here and who is Esau today? And it is the people with that spirit of Esau. They are people who are lawless and do not want to follow God's laws. That would include the international bankers, many congressmen, many in the news media, many public leaders, and probably the entire entertainment industry. And, and they will be removed soon because God promises to remove the rebels. Now, when you read Ezekiel 6 and 7, it says one-third will die by pestilence, one-third will die by famine and war. That is the removing of the rebels. He's going to have a people that's willing to listen. And that is the time when the parable of the tares is going to be fulfilled. The seed of Esau, these rebels, are going to be removed, and they are the tares. They're going to be removed from the bread, which is Jacob. And you see the other parable of separation of the goats and the sheep. There is a plumb line being drawn across this country. On the right-hand side, you're going to have the sheep. On the left-hand side, you're going to have the goats. And the goats represent Esau. They are those tares. Right. We've lost so much information because we don't see our connection to Israel. 
Right. We do not see our connection to Israel. So while everybody has their eyes looking somewhere else, the the history and the prophecy that's going to be fulfilled is going to happen on this land, and we're not going to know it. And we're going to be reason. like the time of Noah, where we're going and doing our thing and yep. not realizing what's going to come upon this nation. And when it does, it affects the entire world. And that's the reason Messiah can come in as a thief in the night, even though people are looking and, and stuff. But in their scripture and watching world events, he's going to come in and people are not even going to know it. They're not because they're looking truly in the wrong places. Yep. You know, these a lot of these scriptures are going to be fulfilled here. Now, there's going to be prophecy, yes, that's fulfilled in Jerusalem. I believe that, too. We've got to get our mind and understand that you look at both places. You've yep. got to look at both places or you're not going to know what's going to come down. You're going to be caught off guard. You're not going to be able to tell people, which is your commission to do, is tell people what's coming. Linda, I, I can simplify that uh, prophecy in the Middle East thing as simple as this. You need to quit looking for prophecies concerning Israel in the Middle East. Well, Joey, I, we are truly out of time. I truly enjoyed this session. <laughs> I yeah. wish we could go longer, but we are truly out of time. Uh, I'm going to have to say... Blessings to all, and good night. Good night.